at the end of the day, you can't get rich quickly investing in indexes, index funds. You can get rich slowly or you just get rich with everybody else. The only way you can really get rich quickly is by investing in individual bets yeah. or you build your own equity in your own business or you're just a super outperformer at your company and you rise through the ranks. In terms of happiness, I think happiness is progress. Progress is my one word definition of happiness, whether it's progress in your marriage, progress in your business, progress in your career, progress in seeing your children hit milestones. If you can make progress, I think that's happiness, especially if you're working hard to see that progress. And so I think everybody needs to work on something to see progress. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 132. Clark, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, man? Doing great. What's going on in your world? Oh, nothing. Just hanging out, staying at home. You know, I, I we just talked about this a little bit before the show, how it's about the time for the Berkshire Hathaway conference in Omaha. I've never been. Have you? No, I haven't. So I don't own, I don't own actually any Berkshire Hathaway. Do you? No, I do not. So, so I think you have to be a shareholder, but I think you can just have like one share of class B and I think it's like 240 bucks or something right now. But I was just curious and I thought, you know what, this might actually be pretty interesting to go one time before Charlie Munger, I think that's his name, right? Yep. And, and, Warren, and Warren Buffett pass away. But I just pulled it up and I just saw it says Berkshire Hathaway will hold its 2020 annual shareholders meeting Saturday, May 2nd beginning at 3.45 p.m. Central Time. So I guess that's this last Saturday since we're going to release this after that. Uh, as previously announced, we will not allow shareholders to be in person, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be online. So anyway, pretty interesting. But I saw that and, and thought it would be fun to go sometime. But speaking of that and, and traveling to go there, there's a lot of travel deals right now, right? Are you booking anything? Yeah, you know, I had a couple things planned already for that they got canceled. So a couple, I took the airline credit. The others, uh, we just canceled and got our money back. And I went ahead and I went on a crazy spending spree in terms of rebooking all of our travel. For the rest of this year, I still got some airline credit that I need to use up uh, that I'm looking at booking our, our ski trip actually for next year uh, into January, February already. And uh, the deals are crazy if you're willing to, to take, you know, if you're confident. And, I, you know, a lot of these airlines, this is the thing, too, and this is pro- partly why I did it. You know, the, the airlines and, and cruises and stuff have put in kind of guarantees, right? So, like. Let's just say for whatever reason, I got to cancel or I got to change it down the road for whatever reason. If we get a second wave of coronavirus or if something changes and I don't want to go, you know, they're allowing you to just take that and cancel it. No fees and defer it again. So I kind of thought it was a no brainer. I mean, I, I, I'm going to travel. We already had the money set aside to do it. So to me, it kind of just was like a no brainer. Just go ahead and book those book those trips and the deals are just crazy right now. I mean, what are you what are you seeing? So how like what's the reduction in, in prices? Because I know oh, you booked 50 a few to, things. Yeah, fifty to seventy five percent down. We booked a cruise for I don't know, probably sixty percent off. I mean, it was like they're just throwing, trying to get people to to commit to something. So we booked a cruise for like next or in November, I think, and then uh, got a trip. Just my my wife and I are going on one that we haven't canceled yet uh, in July. Uh, that we need to get flights for. We're going to do a little 
little race together and, you know, just a couple other smaller ones um, that, that we put together and booked. And it, I, the, the deals were just so good, I just couldn't do it. But I right. will say I, I did cancel all of our international travel for the time being. So we're going to stay domestic in Canada. I guess the crew's not totally domestic, but for the most part, it'll, you know, leave out of, out of Miami and circle around the Caribbean there. And so we're not, we're not taking off into, uh, you know, Asia or Europe or anything else like Central America like we had planned. But what about you? Yeah. And your thought is on the cruise, at least, right? If it gets canceled, then you could just, I mean, they're just refunding everybody. So it's really yeah. not that big of a deal if the dates work out and same with the airlines. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, here's the thing, like I feel a little bit of responsibility, you know, we luckily we've been blessed and, you know, nothing's gone crazy yet with income situation and stuff. And I feel like, you know, as much as I've been blessed to, to travel a little bit and do some of these things, I kind of feel like a little bit of responsibility to try to help in a lot of ways too, because that's, that's money I would normally spend anyway, as it is in, in terms of, you know, booking travel and stuff. So we just try to book some of that early, take advantage of the deals. I don't mind putting, you know, the airlines get the money way farther in advance than they normally would from me just because the deals are so good. That's fine. You know, I, I want them to survive. I think a lot of people want them to survive and be able to, you know, pay their employees and do the things they need to do to kind of uplift the economy as a whole. And obviously totally. I can't bail them out, but I can do a little bit of a part as, right. you know, right. I know you and got I a heck saw, of a deal, yeah, right? Yeah, we saw cheap enough flights that we booked a flight down to Austin to come see you guys. That's right, Obviously man. you're aware of that. So we we spent, what was it, I think 130 bucks or something. So 65 bucks round trip per person, my wife and I, to come down and visit you guys. So that'll be fun. We'll do our first podcast episode or intro together. Yeah. Um, Finally got Moneybags Clark to find a flight cheap enough to come down to Texas. Or I should yeah. say back to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gets under 150. That's about the time I'll pull the trigger. Yeah, I remember when we were looking at it, it was like, we were looking at different dates and one day it was like $20 more. It's like, ah, scratch that. Like, we're, we got to the point where we were like, so price sensitive now. It's like, dude, you got to book the cheapest one. Like, they're going to let, they're going to put the flight down for 65 bucks. Like, you oh, can't exactly. book the one you for fly 80. On a Friday, you fly on a Friday, you come back on a Sunday, it's 65 bucks a person. You look at the next weekend, it's, it's 87. You're like, ooh. Yeah. That's, that's steep. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> that'll be a good time. That's in July. So hopefully things kind of get back to normal. I think, you know, today, Texas or this week, we're kind of getting back and hopefully, you know, as citizens, we can do our part to continue to, to, to fight the virus, but, you know, get back to, to some sort of normal life and economically speaking, get people back to work so that we don't have suffering in all sorts of other areas in addition to, to our health. So right. Right. With you on that. Anyway, so on today's show, we've got Sam from Financial Samurai. He retired from a finance career in 2012 with a net worth of $3 million and had about 80 k in passive income at the time. We discussed his stories, investing strategies, and negotiating a severance. It was a very interesting conversation. He was able to negotiate a severance that essentially paid for five to six years of his living expenses after he kind of retired. So we talk about that, get into all of the details uh, about his website, and about his desire now to actually kind of come back to work after a little bit of a mini retirement. So that very interesting conversation. It's going to be a phenomenal episode today. Last week, we had our first updates with a former guest on the show, the two Jeffs. We got a post-retirement update from, from one and an update on allocation from both of them as we moved into interesting uncharted waters in terms of volatility in the marketplace. And we get into how they've been able to increase their net worth and kind of what their 
thoughts are as it relates to investing based on where they are now in their different lives. We appreciate y'all tuning into the podcast week after week. If you'd enjoy the show, we'd appreciate you leaving a five-star review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us continue to grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Also, if you're interested in any of our multifamily opportunities, please reach out to us, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll get in a call. We're definitely starting to see some more opportunities come in the marketplace. We'll have a lot more uh, uh, discussions with some of you. I know some of you wrote in. We've had some calls with you, and we didn't have quite as many as as, in, as we had in the past as of recent, but that is going to be changing here shortly. So love to get involved and, and have those discussions with you. So without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with Sam from Financial Samurai. Sam, do you want to just give us a little bit about your story and kind of brief background and then kind of what you're doing now? Sure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, my basic background is that I grew up overseas uh, to U.S. Foreign Service officers. Uh, I came to America in high school and college, and then I went to work in investment banking for 13 years, specifically in the Asian Equities Department. And from 1999 to 2012, and then in 2012, I was able to negotiate a severance and get the hell out. And I've been out ever since 2012, but I'm thinking about getting back in in 2020 since I've got a family to take care of now. Wait, what? Getting back in? <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> You know what? What is that sign? What, what, what is that saying? Every time I try to get out, they they, they suck me back in. What's that famous line? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like I've been on a um, like you know the three month summer vacations in high school or college, and after the third month, you're like, I, I need to I need to go see people and go to back to school, even though school can kind of suck. So I'm kind of like that, but it's just an eight year time frame, and a lot of a lot has changed uh, since I left in 2012. Uh, one, I had a kid in 2017. Two, we traveled everywhere, like everywhere you can imagine we traveled to. Well, not everywhere, but, you know, after like the hundredth church in Europe, they all start looking the same. Um, we've done <laughs> everything we've wanted to do. And then we had uh, a daughter in December of 2019. Oh, congrats. So thank you very much. So that, that really kind of emboldened me to, to review my numbers and to just kind of keep on hustling again. There's a great saying that says, have children and the money will come. And the saying is very <laughs> true because once you have children, it's like, ooh, your motivation goes through the roof to provide. And I think it's just a genetic disposition to ensure the survival of our species. Totally. So I kind of want to rewind here and get a little backstory on that and that decision that you've made and stuff but roughly speaking in 2012 your net worth when you retired was sitting at what now uh three million about okay. three million and it was generating it was generating about eighty thousand dollars a year in passive income the semi-passive income and then i had some income coming from financial samurai the website i started in 2009 so i knew right then and there i was like well i have like something i want to go to so you know, I think I'd be okay instead of just retiring and doing nothing. I was like, all right, let's do financial samurai, right? Go travel and then see what happens. And then again, I had the severance package, which provided for five to six years of living expenses. Oh, wow. Yeah. I want to, I want to get into that too, because I think, I think you're a major promoter of, of negotiating a severance and, 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 uh, it's been very successful for you. Obviously, if you had five to six years of living expenses negotiated when you left, it kind of gave you that cushion, but let's kind of rewind just a little bit. You left in 2012 in the last eight years, driven you to, to kind of maybe return other than having the two children. Uh, let's see. Maybe. 
just kind of wanting to try it again. So I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So even though I started Financial Samurai in 2009, 2009 and it's grown consistently every single year, I never really treated it as a business where, you know, I see some people, all they do is focus on making money. And so they really treat their websites like businesses, right? They, they find new business partnerships. They write really boring articles, but that they're really geared towards um, affiliate income and all that stuff. <laughs> and I never really wanted to do that. But I was thinking to myself, why don't I do that too? I mean, I can write my stories in my old same fashion, you know, weave in a story and some lessons learned to make it entertaining. But I can also produce a lot of the boring stuff out there to try to make uh, affiliate income as well. So why not do both? So that's that's basically my plan for the next six months is to try to optimize Financial Samurai a little bit better for revenue and then see what I can do. And if I can do well, then maybe I won't go find a job. But if I can't do well, then hmm, maybe maybe I'll go back to the salt mines. I don't know. Hmm, that's interesting. So roughly, how, how, how were you invested when you retired? And has that allocation changed at all over the last 10 years, this bull market that we've been in? So I have been, it's always been kind of a third, a third, a third. So a third stocks, um, a third, it's a little bit more than a third, like 40 to 50, 40 to 45% real estate. And then the rest, um, more conservative investments like CDs, money markets, and also now municipal bonds. So I've always been pretty diversified because I worked in the finance industry in equities. So I didn't want to leverage my career, you know, my bonus and all that. So I wanted to go away from equities as much as possible. So every time I got a bonus, I would try to invest in things mostly other than equities. So mostly real estate. But going forward, you know, it's really interesting because we've had a 10 plus year bull market. And I just have a different kind of allocation philosophy right now. And that philosophy um, is really focused a little bit more on real estate because real estate I found has lagged um, the equity markets, right? The equity markets, the S&P 500 was up 30% in 2019. But the real estate market, at least here in San Francisco, but actually many parts of the country really lagged behind. And I think now with affordability up because people are wealthier, thanks to the stock market, to the economy, to falling mortgage rates, I think the real estate market is going to try to catch up in 2020 and beyond. And so I'm, I'm looking to allocate about 50% of my incremental income to real estate, only about 20% to the S&P 500, uh, maybe 5% to individual stocks, 20% maybe to bonds, and about 5% to venture capital. Hmm. So the real estate, what kind of real estate are we talking? Small business, multi, or small, single family, multifamily, something else? So I am, first of all, looking at panoramic ocean view San Francisco property, physical property to own its residential single family homes, because I think single family homes in San Francisco with views are at a huge discount relative to the world, the big international cities that have view homes. They always trade at premiums in every other city, like Hong Kong, New York City, wherever. Whereas in San Francisco, these panoramic view homes are trading at discounts. And so I think there's a real great arbitrage as San Francisco becomes more and more of an international city. So that's one. I think it's a no-brainer to buy mm. new homes of the ocean in San Francisco. And then two, I'm actively diversifying a lot of my real estate exposure to the heartland of America, to what we call 18-hour cities or secondary cities, because there is no monopoly on building the next San Francisco thanks to technology. San Francisco is also very expensive, right? And I think there's an affordability cap 
in certain areas. So I think the growth is really going to come from those secondary cities, like perhaps Austin, Memphis, you know, places in Utah, where, wherever that's much cheaper, but is seeing good job growth. And I think there's right. a great trend toward demographic shift there. And I think that there's a great trend uh, towards remote, uh, remote work. So I think this is a multi-decade trend. Yeah, you see it even more, too, with like Portland, Seattle, Charlotte, Raleigh-Durham, right? Some of those cities that are taken off. Right. So these these uh, single-family panoramic views in houses <laughs> in, in San Francisco, how much does it cost to get into one of those? Do you partner with a couple people? What's your hold period? Um, I would say my hold period would be forever. I think you're going to wake up 20, 30 years from now and be like, what? I can't believe you got it for this price. So mm-hmm. everything is relative. San Francisco, the median uh, price per square foot is about $1,050. But here's the thing. If you can get a single-family home um, with panoramic ocean views, you can still get them for about $850 to $900 a square foot, depending on condition. Let's say $800 to $950. But if you try to buy a panoramic ocean view home in another international city, they would be trading at 50% premiums already, so $1,500 a square foot. So right now, I think there's like a 15 to 20% discount. And I think that's going to converge at least to the median, at the very least, if not to like a 30% premium. And then when you add on growth of, you know, just the normal growth of the housing market prices in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, I think it's going to be a great investment. So you just, you're just buying them and then renting them out. So I would buy them, live in them, rent them out, or I would just buy it and rent it out, or I'd buy it. And use it as like the financial samurai office or so mm-hmm, forth. Mm-hmm, gotcha. And then these investments in the other areas, I, I read an article on your blog that, that you do some real estate crowdfunding as well, right? Is that crowdfunding or with partners? Yeah, that's crowdfunding. And that is to help me diversify away from expensive coastal city markets. And so that, that's, that's the method I use to try to get exposure uh, to places like in Austin, Dallas, Memphis, and so forth. I've got about... I've got 18 uh, different real estate, commercial real estate investments through crowdfunding. Wow. And that's been pretty good for you, right? Because we've had a few people on that have had negative experiences with it where they haven't met the people, that you know, that sort of thing. They're not sure what to invest in. They put some money in, take a chance, and then lose it. But for you, it seems like it's been pretty good. Well, so what I did was I, I first tried it out with a $10,000 investment in a Conchie, Pennsylvania commercial property. Um, it's like a class A. It's really probably more like class B. It's only 10000 bucks, And it's done well. It's probably like a 14 15% IRR. And then so I gradually legged in, like like you should do for any kind of relatively new investment. Sure. So I legged in about, oh, my first investment, real investment was 250000 because it was a fund. And for me, I didn't know exactly what to pick. I just wanted to pick the hopefully the best of the best. And so I, I invested in a fund and then I just, increase my exposure to the fund over time. And so that fund has 17 investments. I think 14 are doing very well. So hitting the IRR targets. Three are doing are, are providing a positive return, but not hitting the t- IRR targets. And one is a total dud, which is down like 80%. Because mm. it's uh, it's one of those. You have to be careful about what you invest in. I invested in all equities, but you got to look at the capital structure and how they raise. So for example, let's say it's a $10 million deal. And they raise eight million debt and two million equity. And you're part of the equity. And let's say the ten million dollar deal, they're trying to sell it for I don't know eleven million dollars or whatever it is. But they only end up selling it for eight million dollars, right? So the debt investors get all their money back, but the equity investors get wiped out. Mm. 
So it's something that people really need to understand the structure of the deal and the quality right. of sponsorship and all that. So for me, I decided, well, I'm going to invest in a fund. So they're going to make the best decisions. Supposedly, it's the best deals that they believe. And then I'm going to learn from that. And then I'm going to go from there. Sure. So it's been about three and a half years now. Seems like it's about a 15, 16% IRR. I won't know exactly for sure until I get all my funds back over the next right. couple of years. But this stuff, I, I allocate uh, less than 10% of my net worth. And it's something that I'm interested in, but uh, I'm not going to go all in on yet. So you've stuck with, at least in these more recent deals, the same sponsor versus trying different sponsors or general partners. So it's multiple sponsors uh, for multiple deals. Um, but the platform, so the platforms uh, are the same. There's yeah. many platforms out there, but the sure. sponsor is the one who raises the capital to do these deals. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Good for you. So just jumping back, let's talk about this severance package a little bit. I know we wanted to talk about that. So you, you left this job at age 31. Is that right? 30, 34. Oh, 34. Excuse me. And, and tell us about the severance package, maybe what that means for somebody that's not familiar with it and, and how you go about getting one of those. Yeah. So everybody, every employee needs to know that if you have a job, it means that you're providing more value than your cost. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a job. And if you want to leave your job, especially if you've been there for, let's say, more than three years, and if you want to actually retire early or take an extended vacation or whatnot, it behooves you to negotiate a severance instead of just give a two-week notice and quit because of the following reasons. One, if you quit, you don't get any unemployment benefits because you quit. Unemployment benefits are decent. You know, you can get something like I think it was eight to nine hundred dollars every two weeks in San Francisco for twenty six weeks. And during the financial crisis, you could have got an unemployment benefits for ninety nine weeks. Granted, you need to still apply online for other jobs, but that's that's part of the deal. Um, two, if you negotiate a severance, you can get a severance, right? It's an actual a, a physical check that your company writes to you based on the number of years worked. So, so the general math is about. A severance equals one to three week, one to three weeks worth of pay per year work. So if you work there for 10 years, you get 10 to 30 weeks of pay. And then, depending on how your compensation is structured at work, you can negotiate your deferred cash and your deferred stock compensation. So in banking, much of our, I would say a majority of our bonus was deferred compensation that would pay out over a three-year time period. So if you left, you would lose out on three years worth of bonuses if you've been there for at least three years. And so I didn't want to do that. And that's what we call the golden handcuffs in banking and in many other industries where you have deferred compensation. So what I did was negotiated a severance to say, hey, guys, I've been here for how many years was I there for? I think it was 11 years. 11 years. Yeah, 11 years. I'm going to transition all my accounts to my subordinate that I hired. I'm going to train him. I'm going to make a smooth transition as possible. You guys are not going to lose any business. And in return, I would like you to treat me well as a long-standing employee and pay out all my deferred compensation and give me a severance, and all will be good. And that negotiation took about a couple months, but it happened, and it was it was like winning the lottery. It was it was like the best feeling to be able to leave a job with money in your pocket, uh, and you want to leave a job you, that you would have left for free anyway because you want to go do something else. So sure. anybody who wants to leave a job permanently and leave the industry permanently. There's no downside in trying to negotiate a severance by asking how you can help your employer smooth out the transition process. I have consulted with so many people and, and a lot of people have read my book before and they've all said, man, I had no idea this could be possible. And so it just really makes me happy to hear people 
try to fight for themselves during the exit process because we're always fighting for ourselves during the mm. entry process, right? We're like, you got to hire me because I know this, 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 and that. You got to pay me this and give me this title. But nobody really knows how to fight for themselves during the exit process, which is ironic because every entry has an exit. So what if they don't? What if they don't want to help? What if they don't want you to leave? And they say, hey, you know, we're not going to entice you to leave early. If you yeah. want to leave, you can quit, but we're not going to pay you to because we don't want you to. Well, it, it's one of those, it's like a dance. No employer wants to have an employee who is just going to sit on their hands, right? Right, right. But that, that's what you might do if you don't, if, if they don't give you the, the severance <laughs> package. So it's one of those things where, and I talk about it in my book, but there are many, many different strategies. And employers uh, nowadays really, you know, they have the power, but the employee is getting more and more power thanks to social media, thanks to uh, more transparency of information. And employers' number one um, fear is to have their reputation ruined by employees, you know, because they want to hire new employees and you know build their business and so forth. So if you if you scorn, it's like if you scorn a, a good employee who wants to leave anyway, that. It's just not good business. A good business practice for an employer is to work out some kind of agreement. I know, I know several employers who have come to me and said, man, I wish, I wish my employees negotiated severance because if they did, they wouldn't have left me in the lurch for, you know, three months or four months because it takes time to find people to replace you. And then once you find them, you got to train them for months, right? Okay. So they say, Hey, give me a little bit more time and then I'm happy to pay you out a little bit. No, that's that's definitely one strategy. That's sure. the, that's a basic strategy, basic goal. And then, do employers worry about making a a case out of it about everybody doing the same thing, or maybe some of them would want it that way? It's all private. All these discussions, you sign a non disclosure agreement, so you don't t- tell anybody your exact details. I mean, you can, uh, and then you run the risk of getting your servants club back. But um, sure, sure, sure. It's it's a, it's a private matter. But what I want people to know, employees, every to know everywhere to know is that you have the power you have more power than you realize it's not david versus goliath you have tremendous power as an employee know your rights read your employee handbook know how to negotiate your exit package and i think you're going to do well nice so you've written a book on this right how to engineer your layoff that's in the third edition right where can where can people find that oh yeah it's in the third edition for 2020 it just incorporates new feedback new strategies and you just find it on my website financialsamurai.com under negotiating a severance. So Sam, I want to, well, just jump back to your net worth actually real quick. The money that you have in, 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 in securities is that mutual funds, index funds, bonds, what do you invest in? About 25% of my net worth is in stocks. And I would say 80% of the net worth of the stock allocation is just in index funds in the S&P 500. And then 20% of that are in individual stocks like Tesla, Amazon. You know, I live in San Francisco, right? So I'm too stupid to be able to get a job at any of these companies. So <laughs> at the end of the day, I just, I say, hey, I, I'm just going to still take advantage and I'm going to own a portion of your company just through stock ownership and then just ride the wave with you. Yes. And actually, that was one of the reasons why I bought as much San Francisco real estate as possible because I knew it was a play on the growth of the tech industry, which I had no credibility or credentials to get in. So I said, you know what? I'm going to buy real estate as a derivative play on the tech industry, and I'm going to buy as many tech companies that I believe in as possible. And that's what I did. 
Well, Tesla's been actually a pretty amazing one, right? I think the summer got down to like 180 or yeah, yeah, it was crazy. 187 or something, and now we're at 492 at the beginning of January. It was crazy. It was like uh, I have I play softball with a friend of mine who's a preschool teacher. He's a preschool teacher, and he bought like a Tesla three, and it was fifty two thousand. I was like, what? How how can you buy a fifty two thousand dollar car as a preschool teacher? (laughs) And and I didn't ask him that, but I was like, sure, sure. I'm not going to let a preschool teacher. You know, out out um, out out hustle me. So I decided to go buy fifty two thousand dollars worth of Tesla stock when he bought his car, and uh, and it was good. And then it went down to one eight. I bought it at two eighty, and it went down to like yeah two hundred or one thousand. Oh man, I should have listened to this preschool teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we just held on. It's it's fine. I mean, it's all a gamble. Sure. But the way the way you, the way you invest in individual stocks is, I mean, the way I like to invest is you look at. Um, you look at the company, you look at the founders, you look at how difficult it is to get into to these companies and you look at their product and their future and their, and you know, you look at your fine, the financials, of course, and then you make a bet. And so for five, 5% allocation, I just make a bet. And at the end of the day, you can't get rich quickly investing in indexes, index funds. You can get rich slowly or you just get rich with everybody else. The only way you can really get rich quickly is by investing in individual bets. Yeah. Or you build your own equity in your own business. Or you're just a super outperformer at your company and you rise through the ranks. Um, so my, my whole, you know, philosophy on financial samurai is financial independence sooner rather than later. And so that's what I've been trying to do and help other people too. Yeah. So let's dive into your story a little bit because you did retire early and, and then you actually came back. And I think you're one of the few that at least that I've heard that said, Hey, maybe I retired either A, a little bit too early or B, I want more money. I mean, tell us, I guess, from the beginning here, what was your thinking and saying, hey, I want to retire early and I have this amount of money and I think that's going to be enough. Um, so in 2012, I had $80,000 in relatively passive income plus uh, online income uh, that was growing. And I thought this would be enough. I didn't have any kids. And I thought, OK, let's see what life not working is like. And again, we've fulfilled all our dreams and goals uh, for those eight years. And then, and then since then, we've had two children. And when you look at the cost of raising children in a place like San Francisco or New York, which are the two only two cities that I've worked and lived in after college, it's very expensive. For example, our health insurance bill is around $2,400 a month. That's just healthcare premiums. And then, you know, preschool for two kids is about 4000 a month. And so I thought to myself, look, we're fine right now. We live, our passive income is around $250,000, uh, $50,000 of which is our book sales. And we live off comfortably off less than 200000 gross in passive income. But in three years, will this still be the same? I doubt it because tuition, healthcare costs, um, all sorts of important things are growing at three to seven percent per annum. And I always want to stay ahead of the curve. So I know I've gotten a lot of uh, pushback and ridicule saying, aha, you know, what a failure I am. And that's fine. But I'm not thinking about just right now. I'm thinking about always three to five years in the future to see what else might happen out there, you know, because you just don't really know. And at the end of the day, I think it's, it's really exciting to try to provide for a family. I think there's no greater honor. And so my goal is to try to accumulate another one and a half million dollars in capital without having a day job, really. My wife and I don't work uh, over the next three years. 
and that'll be $500,000 a year on average, right? And I think it's going to be fun because if I can get to one and a half million, it'll generate about $60,000 in gross passive income, which would cover all these incremental costs after we've had uh, our baby girl. Sam, that's kind of an interesting perspective. You want to generate an additional 60K in incremental income. You know, and I know we talked a little bit before the show about that 60K number. That's basically kind of what the average household income is in this country. How, how are you going to go about doing incremental income? And how would somebody who's, who's just starting out think about generating incremental income, whether or not they have a day job or not? Well, I think it's important, first of all, if you have a day job, to not believe that that's the only income source you should have. You should have multiple income sources, especially in 2020 when the internet and uh, allows you to make more money so much easier. Uh, this is not, you know, 1990, it's 2020. So you should have at least one other income stream besides your day job income, at least. And then you should have goals. Like I have specific reasons why I want to generate an extra 60,000. And those specific reasons are to cover healthcare costs and tuition costs. Uh, and also probably more food costs and probably more costs for a bigger house because, you know, we have more people in our family now. And so I have a specific reason why I want to generate $60,000 more in uh, passive income or retirement income or one and a half million dollars. And then you systematically break it down after you have a target date. So I have a three year target date. And then so I break it down on, okay, after, you know, six months, I should be generating an additional $850 a month in incremental revenue to get to my $6,000 target. You know, after six months, uh, I should be generating or I should have accumulated an extra 250000 in capital to get to my $1.5 million target. It's, it's a very systematic way of doing things. And you've got to look at your strengths and you've got to work on your weaknesses. So for myself, I know that I spent 10 years building the Financial Samurai platform. I've treated it more... 70, 80% fun, 20, 30% business. And now I'm thinking, well, you know what? Why don't I treat it more like a business, like 50, 50 at least to see if I can monetize the brand, build the brand, grow the site and see if I can find more partnerships and so forth. And if I can do that, great. And then I'm going to look at other employment opportunities because employment is actually fun. If you really find something that's awesome, that gives you the flexibility and pays you well and provides all these benefits. And I think employment is really fun if you don't actually have to really work, too. Think about that. If you're just doing it because you love the team, you love the mission, and they're going to pay you 250 grand a year, that's pretty good to me. Yeah, so as people approach early retirement and if they take a similar path to you, based on what you've lived through and, and, and kind of described here on, on the show so far today, do you think the 4% rule holds true to somebody who wants to retire. Is that enough? So the 4% rule is an old rule when interest rates are much higher. You look at the 10-year bond yield now, it's at 1.9%. So I would say the 4% 4 rule is aggressive. You probably want to do more of the 3% rule to be more conservative or more real. But math is easy and it's easy to kind of fall on old ways. 4% is fine. Uh, my ideal withdrawal rate in retirement is to never touch principal. It's either to never touch principal or start touching principal after you've achieved 11.58 11 11 .58 million per person 
because that's the estate tax limit, I believe, for 2020. So every dollar over 11.58 million is taxed around 40%. So why hoard money after that? You should spend it, give it away, help other people. Do you think it's valuable for somebody to look into geo-arbitrage as they approach a potential early retirement or even just retirement in general? Is that something that should be part of somebody's plan? or And if so, how would they plan for that? Yeah, I think geo-arbitrage geo is a, is a no-brainer if you can do it. Uh, I think the proper geo-arbitrage strategy is to geo-arb your city first and then your country and then the world. I don't think you have to go from your city to a different country. Uh, just right here in San Francisco, there is a 40% spread in terms of rent and housing price, average housing price costs within a seven by seven mile radius. So when you hear all these people just kind of complain about high housing costs, I'm always just kind of scratching my head wondering, why don't you just spend another 15 minutes, a 15 minute longer commute? It's not that much longer and you could save 30 to 40% on housing costs. So I think people need to explore their cities first because that's what they're familiar with. But a lot of us just kind of stick to our little neighborhood and our same old friends and it's just, it's just kind of inertia. So explore your city because I bet you can find a at least 20%, 30% cost variance and then explore the country. Sure, country, you can go, there's so many cheaper places than the coast and there's a lot of beautiful places. But the only problem is you're going to lose your friends in your network. And then finally, last resort, you know, go to Mexico, go to Thailand, go to Vietnam or whatever. But obviously, go try and uh, try before you buy. Yeah, totally agree with you. And then in each city, I think there's up and coming areas that are appealing that you can get in early, right? For a for a cheaper price, maybe. Yeah. So, just Sam, just in closing here, what stood out to you? And there's, I know there's a great article on your on your website, and I encourage everybody to go read that. But what stood out to you in early retirement as as you know one one of the things being that you didn't have as much social interaction, right, as you would have liked. Maybe what's what stood out to you, A, and then B, like what are some of these things that maybe some people might be overlooking if they're considering early retirement? Oh, let's see. There's so many things um, that you just don't know until you experience it yourself. Yeah, one is social interaction or the lack thereof. You really need to make an effort to find people because work is an installed base of social activity, right? The weekend barbecue at your coworker's place, you know, the softball league team of your company and so forth. Let's see, what are the things that really kind of stood out to me? Well, one of the things is that I really was able to, uh, it was like water. I fl I flowed to where there was opportunity. Um, so I had so much free time that, and I, and I wanted to spend my time purposefully doing something that I really enjoyed. And that's just rational. And so I basically did everything that I really wanted to do. I worked on my tennis game and I worked very hard to get bumped up to a 5-0 level which is a tough level. It's like X division one college athlete level. Uh, and I did that for a train for two years and I got there and it was so rewarding. It was like more rewarding or equally as rewarding as getting a huge promotion or a huge raise or whatever. And so it's not just about the money. It's like working on something you really care about and making progress. That was, that was very rewarding. The other thing was, um, you might end up wealthier you might end up making more money uh than while you were working because you just find something you just really love to do where you don't have that stress of trying or needing to make lots and lots of money and so what i've been doing for 10 plus years is writing on financial samurai three times a week and the site has grown and i never i never would have thought that the site would be able to generate a livable income stream but it has and so that is kind of an x factor there are a lot of these unknown X factors that happen once you get out of the workforce where you realize there is so many other ways to live 
and so many other ways to make a lot of money. And there's so many better ways to live too. It's really hard to go back uh, to the grind once you've left. And that's why I'm kind of hesitant when I say, you know, I, I think it could be cool if I could find the right fit to go back to a job and make extra money for the next two, three years. But I don't know if I'll be able to, you know, the commute, <laughs> being able to sit in on meetings about other yeah. meetings, yeah, yeah. being able to learn about, you know, office politics and you know, compliment your colleagues on a job well done, even though you might not believe it's a job well done. You know, all these things that I kind of left behind, uh, it might be really hard to adapt to again. Yeah. Yeah. All the things that people want to leave because of. Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting because after the first year of leaving my day job, I never told anybody that I retired early. I mean, I felt like an idiot, especially in San Francisco where everybody's go, go, go. A lot of type A, a lot of people coming from the most overpriced universities trying to make, make a name for themselves. Right. And so as soon as I stopped telling people I retired early and as soon as I said I was a writer or uh, entrepreneur or blogger or a high school tennis coach, which I've been doing for the past three and a half years, I felt I felt great. I felt like uh, I had like a identity again, which I think is really important because we spend so much time working and doing what we want to do or need to do to provide for our family that that work identity is is much stronger than I think people realize once they've left it. Yeah. So what is that for you? Or I guess maybe the better question is what is what does happiness mean? What is financial independence, right? It's, it's, I would assume you'd say it's not X amount of money. Is it, is it financial freedom to you? What, what is it to you? So I, I do believe in the strict definition of financial independence is to have enough passive income to cover your desired, your best life living expenses. It's that simple. So if your best life living expenses, if your best life costs a hundred thousand dollars a year after tax, you should probably have about a hundred. $30,000 in retirement income. You're good. Financial independence, I don't think, is scraping by and living really, really frugally because you don't have enough capital to generate enough passive income and that you've, you're forcing yourself to switch careers. I think that's just switching careers, right? And I think that's a criticism uh, a lot of us have in the community, get in the community, where people say, oh, you just went from working in marketing to blogging or podcasting or whatever. And that's really valid criticism. But the criticism is invalid if that person has enough capital to generate enough income where he or she doesn't have to work. In terms of happiness, I think happiness is progress. Progress is my one-word definition of happiness, whether it's progress in your marriage, progress in your business, progress in your career, progress in seeing your children hit milestones. If you can make progress... I think that's happiness, especially if you're working hard to see that progress. And so I think everybody needs to work on something to see progress. It's like I get tremendous joy out of planting plants and watering them and seeing the progress of them growing over the you know one, two, three years. It's just really rewarding. And so it's just like anything, anything you do, if you're progressing, I think that's happiness. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. And, and I think you can progress, obviously, at multiple things at the same time, right? Yeah, for sure. What age did you hit a millionaire status? Do you remember? Uh, I was 28. I remember getting into the office at 5.30 in the morning in 1999 and then working until like 7.30 and then sometimes until 9.30 because I worked international equity. So I had to like talk to the people in Hong Kong and stuff. And then I remember after a month, I was like, there's no way I can last this long. And I just remember having 
telling myself I couldn't last. I better save as much money as possible. So I saved from the get go half my paycheck or every, every other paycheck, right? Which leads to 50% savings rate. And then I saved or invested 100% of my year end bonus because I just had to get out. <laughs> awesome. Well, good for you. And, and congrats on your success financially and both with the website. Everyone, everyone again, that's Sam from Financial Samurai. Check it out at financialsamurai.com. Sam, thanks for, so much for your time, for coming on the show and sharing your story. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. And I'd love to speak to you guys again. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.